Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, Sarah, thanks for coming down this afternoon. Yeah, happy to, um, you know, introduce the podcast for today and the theme we're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a crazy podcast because this is going to be the last podcast that I'm taping for Edible Alpha. And it's because I am going to be leaving FFI to become the CEO of something called Iroquois Valley Farmland REIT, um, which we can talk some more about. Um, so I am going to be transitioning the podcast to the folks who are carrying the torch forward at FFI. And the primary person who's going to be doing that is Sarah, um, who is joining us on this podcast. And we're going to turn the tables and Sarah's going to interview me. Um, what's so cool about this for me is that there's this great, uh, arc of life in this because um, Sarah is my first employee at Tara's Way. And so she and I go back a long way. And I, I've been so, um, so grateful to have her come and join me again at FFI. And it's just awesome to see FFI transition into Sarah's leadership. So with that, Sarah, I'm going to throw it over to you. Yeah. And this is, I agree, this is a really, I think, powerful podcast for a lot of reasons today. Having the opportunity to, as Tara said, kind of turn the tables and and help Tara tell her journey of starting FFI on the podcast she started five years ago. She's excelled at helping others tell their journey and provide these actionable insights for making money in food and I'm going to kick that off today with her and then other FFI staff will be joining in to kind of continue to help us provide the same areas of content. And um, personally, yeah, this isn't the first time I've been able to see Tara um, grow a company to this place that she is able to kind of take on another journey for herself. And so having been there through Tara's way to FFI is really an honor. And I'm excited to dig in and talk to Tara about all that led to the last eight years of FFI being successful. So why don't we dig in Tara and start with um, the sale of Tara's Way kind of happened around that 2014 time and what happened after that and kind of what led you to identifying the opportunity and starting the Food Finance Institute? Sure. So, um, so yeah, it was around the time that... Um, that, that we sold Tara's Way. Um, actually, it was before we sold Tara's Way, and I was starting to think about, you know, we're kind of on the path to, to selling it. And um, as a founder, you got to be thinking about what's next. And I um, knew I was too young to retire. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I really wanted to make an impact in, in the world. And then, you know, I, I encourage other people to do this, right? Like look at your strengths and what is it that you know a lot of, how can you leverage that? And 
what I realized was the whole Tara's way thing. I learned so much about money by doing that, right? The kind of money it takes um, to, to fund how to do that. It was very complicated. We raised a lot of money to get started um, and to grow Tara's way. So I had this like unique skill set around that. And I thought, you know what? I look around me and there's so many food businesses and farms and food system enterprises that need help raising money. And that was the thing that I wanted to do. So, so that was the need I recognized. And then, um, you know, I, I talked to the university about it and, and that was an interesting thing because the university is used to doing technical assistance for businesses. So the part of the university FFI is in is, called well now it's called the institute for business and entrepreneurship and um the small business development centers are in there and the center for technology commercialization there are a couple of other um programs in in ibe and um the other programs are pretty sector agnostic meaning you know they work with everybody and it's a little unusual to have something just focused on one sector or I I don't know, I'm kind of, you know, combining egg food and Mm -hmm. food systems there. Um, It was unusual for them, but, but in a state like Wisconsin, the combination of those things is over 50% of our GDP. So it's not like it was some little small thing. It was, um, you know, it's a big part of our economy. So it, it was a, it, 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 to this day, it's the only sector specific program within IBE. Yeah. And how did you find entry into making that case for food being different? Um, you identified the GDP need and that it's an important sector, industry sector to focus on. Um, but then what, what makes the technical assistance for a food business different than other sectors where it really does need this targeted assistance? Yeah, so that's it's a great question. And I think I think the how to say this, I think I think technical assistance for startups has developed um is more developed for other sectors in around here in particular, we do a lot of um, biotech startups in, in the Madison area anyway. So we're pretty good. We've got some accelerate back now, back we talk about back then and now, but we have uh, accelerators, we have special, you know, um, investment groups and they, they kind of know the paradigm, right. For, for the money around starting, a biotech company. Mm-hmm. And, and we kind of have the same thing for software companies and for game, for apps and games and stuff, because we do those kinds of startups in Madison in particular. Um, but not so much, ironically, not so much around food. And, and the way the money works for both biotech and software is really different than food and even more different for agriculture. So the result was that, uh, you know, if you're, if you were a startup food brand or a farm that wanted to do something value added and you went, went to one of those accelerators, um, you know, you got some help, but it, it wasn't everything about the money 
was actually not that relevant. And the, the investors and people surrounding those programs are, are not going to support food companies. So mm-hmm. for that reason, I think that that combined with how big of a industry it is in Wisconsin, it, it made sense to have something that was more industry specific. When you've had not only success in Wisconsin, I mean, FFI has grown to have national recognition and to have reach even an impact um, beyond the state of Wisconsin. Can you talk a little bit about how how that came to be? And Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so. So when I started, um, it was all it was Wisconsin and it was me. Right. So I I talked to the university and. They, I got folks, folks were like, oh yeah, that would make sense. Um, and I started, I was doing one-on-one work all by myself. Right. And, and that was with, with foods and food companies and farms in Wisconsin. And, um, what became really clear to me at that time was that there was kind of an infinite need for the work I was doing. Um, this is kind of, I won't say at the beginning of the local food movement, but it was, I don't know, sort of early in the local food movement. So lots of initiatives all over the country, lots of small brands getting started mm-hmm. all over the country and everybody trying to figure out about how to how to get the money they needed to do what they were going to do, wanted to do. And and so I was doing one-on-one consulting and realized like I couldn't even cover Wisconsin, never mind anywhere else. So that got me thinking, all right, well, how do you scale this thing? Um, so, so kind of the first thing I did, so I know staff, right? So the first thing I did was write a local food promotion program grant, um, USDA grant. And mm-hmm. it's so funny because, um, the maximum you can ask for is a half a million dollars in that grant. And I was put, I I said, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to, I'm going to create a a way to train people to do the kind of work I do consulting technical assistance around money for food and farms and food system enterprises. I'm going to, I'm going to create curriculum and train people around the country. And then I'm also going to create, curriculum that would become a boot camp that I could work with entrepreneurs in. So there were kind of two things in that original mm-hmm. um, grant, right? The consultant training in the boot camp. And I was like, I can't, I literally cannot do this if I don't have a program manager. I can't do all this myself. Um, so I wrote, a, you know, I wrote it into that budget for the thing, um, a program manager. And I put my budget together for everything and it was it was pretty close to half a million dollars. And I I I was like, okay, so I've never gotten a grant before. <laughs> <laughs> but you're an no. entrepreneur, you're not scared. <laughs> totally. And then I was like, but I can't, like I literally can't. This is what the world needs. I know it is. And um and I literally can't do it without the budget that I've got here. So I'm just gonna submit it. I'm gonna write it up and submit the whole thing. And we got it. I mean, so that was that was the thing that really propelled us. Before that, I had secured some foundation funding, which mm-hmm. I'm super grateful for. That kind of that was what enabled us to start FFI in the beginning and just get me doing the work that I was doing. 
But the thing that that really propelled us and got allowed me to get some staff was that LFPP. And then that also is what launched us nationally because I wrote that grant to be able to work with consultants around the country and and food and farming entrepreneurs around the country. So um, so yeah, that's how that that's how that started. Well, and it also kind of as you as you said, really helps you develop the some of that core foundational content through the boot camp and the consultant training, which has become really integral to the work that the Food Finance Institute does and the training we provide. And what what did you see as you were developing that curriculum and kind of proving the concept that it really was going to work and help food businesses and farm businesses and food systems businesses address these pain points and issues. What is, what remains unique about FFI and that be, that be, it's a reflection of me being the person who started it, right. Is that we bring the knowledge of food, like what it takes to be a successful food brand to, um, to farms and to value-added farm mm, enterprises, mm-hmm. right? So like like things like food hubs. And particularly when we started this, that was not the kind of knowledge that was getting, um, that's not the kind of technical assistance that those enterprises were getting. It was very food system-y. So let's take a food hubs, for example. Back then, food hubs were the thing. And actually that... Um, that LFPP was was heavily um, oriented toward food hubs, and um, and what I was what I said like why why do we need me to go around the country and do these things? It was because um, food hubs are such a low margin business. Distribution is such a low margin business that even if you are Cisco and completely automated and know what you're doing, they barely make any money in the private sector, right? So we had a lot of um, illusions in the food system world about Mm -hmm. what was really going to be possible with food hubs. You know, we were going to educate people and we were going to do all this social impact stuff. And and just by virtue of the fees we were getting for distribution, we would be able to pay for all this stuff. And I'm like, it's not going to work because it's too low margin of a business. Um, and, and in fact, it's going to be really hard to figure out how to make it work. And you got to be really good at what you're doing as a business person. So that was, that was the, um, that was the focus of the training. So, um, fast forward to what happened during COVID farms and food hubs, um, food brands, everybody had to pivot. Everybody had to become Mm -hmm. a consumer products marketer, direct to consumer, right? So everything that we've been doing over the last eight years is, if anything, it's become more and more relevant um, to, to our audiences. How did you see all of that influence the financing side of these businesses? Did it and the curriculum, what kind of key trends and insights do you see coming out of COVID that will really shape how people think about financing businesses today and in the future? Yeah, so that's, it's been quite a journey, right? For And food has been really impacted by it. I mean, you know, there are sectors that 
I, I mean, COVID has affected a lot of sectors in a lot of different ways, but certainly food has been in a, in a lot of ways hit disproportionately, right? So food, food service, the whole channel basically shut down, right? And, and over half of the, when COVID hit, over 50% of food consumed in the United States was being consumed out of the home. So suddenly that went away and everything had to change. So, so these business models had to pivot so much. And the, the reason, I know you asked about money, but I always say that mm-hmm. money follows business model. Like you can't really talk about the money or think about it productively until you think about the business model. So, mm-hmm. um, so, the, so there's so much change to food businesses. Um, and, and then at the same time, the, the federal government, um, stepped in recognizing the degree of the disruption saying we need to have some programs. So SBA rolled out, um, the PPP and idle programs that provided, um, loans and grants and, um, other forms of support to food and, well, to any small business, but, um, definitely to food enterprises. So, that it, that's been really interesting because we have some clients who um, their business restaurants in particular, people who had that consumer facing part of their business and it got totally shut down. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, people like that needed this money just to survive. And so they've used it to survive. Some of them use it to stay open so they could pay meet payroll and, and keep their employees doing things. Um, um, so, so there's a category that's like that. There's another category for whom they took the money because everybody, nobody knew what was going to happen, right? So they took the money and then it turned out that for whatever, for whatever reason, their, their business just sort of shifted. It didn't go away. So I just did a podcast interview with a, with a woman who raises wasabi, which is such a fascinating thing. Um, but, and she's a great example. She said, you know, I'm, I, we were concerned, um, cause nobody knew what the heck was going to happen. And, um, and they have a wholesale business and a direct to consumer, both, mm-hmm. both consumer products and plants. They'll sell you what wasabi plant. Um, and they ship them in the mail. And, and she said, what they're, you know, all the sushi restaurants closed. So there goes my wasabi business, except um, that the plant business and people making stuff at home grew, right? So in her case, it just pivoted, right? The business pivoted. So, so somebody like her financially did pretty well coming out of COVID. And she's actually, um, closing on a loan today, which is so cool. Oh, exciting. So yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Today, when we did that podcast, it was she's a perfect day for that podcast. I know, right? <laughs> she left the podcast to go close to sign the papers. Oh, Isn't that awesome? That is. Um, but she's, she's expanding. Like, so she came out of COVID um, with her business stronger and um, she secured conventional financing from, from FSA actually. Um, um, oh, great. To, to seriously expand her farm. So it, it's, it's such a mixed bag is what I'm saying. Right. And, and so, 
Um, some people financially had a really hard time during COVID. Some of them, you know, the PPP and IDOL has sort of helped kept things together. And now the hard time is hit financially is hitting them. Like we're not out of the woods yet here for some people, financially speaking. Right. There's a lot of kind of unknowns for where consumer behavior and patterns would go back that might be influencing some of that planning and and coming back for these businesses as well. Oh yeah. No, we're all like, okay, are consumers going to still cook at home now that Mm -hmm. we know how to do it more? (laughs) You know, (laughs) before COVID, no, we didn't know how to cook anymore, you know, grossly, um, you know, gross simplification, but that was a big problem. And then Mm -hmm. we were all watching YouTube videos. (laughs) And getting used to not being around people. Like, yeah, seriously. Seriously. Like, and now that now people have anxiety when they're around people, right. It's so weird, right. We used to be just, yeah, it's very strange. But, but if you think about, you know, say you're a farm that, that did weddings on your farm or you're, you own a restaurant or something, the fact that people don't feel comfortable around other people is impacting their, their ability to come back right now. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned how IDL and PPP and all of these these sources of funding have kind of helped folks adapt to the situation and how some businesses have been able to kind of happen it naturally where revenue streams have just kind of shifted and compensated for areas that weren't around like food service. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see, what are you, do you see as the biggest financing gaps or opportunities for helping this sector grow to really nurture and develop to help this food farm and food system sector grow? Wow, this is a great question. So let's, we'll take them in pieces here. So food brands, um, so this is, this was happening before COVID, but it certainly got, did COVID did not help. So before COVID, we had um, lots of brands in most categories. Like if you go to a grocery store, there were a lot of brands of pretty much everything. And that was because local food movement and the retailers were hearing from their customers that they really wanted to see all this variety. And so they brought all this stuff in and it had gotten to the point where for brands, it was easy to get on the shelf and hard to get off the shelf. So they needed more and more money for investing in promotions in order to get stuff off the shelf. And that's all working capital for a brand. And it's really hard to raise that kind of money, right? Mm -hmm. It it tends to be equity. Um, The one exception to that is if you can get a guarantee loan like an SBA 7A that can be used for working capital, you might be able to get some working capital that way. But, but when you're talking about brands, it's, it's, it's all about working capital and it's just the hardest kind of capital to get. Um, COVID came for brands, right? Remember in the heat of COVID where you were going to the grocery store and there were empty shelves yep. and what, what the stores were doing when that started happening, because consumers were going to things they knew, right? So, and it were easy because people wanted it before COVID they spent, I don't know, 45 minutes in a grocery store on average, apparently. And then after COVID or during COVID is 15 minutes, you know, so they're not 
leisurely picking new stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're just going into the prego tomato sauce. I know what it is. I'm getting my prego. I'm getting my spaghetti, and I'm leaving. <laughs> Want that and comfort, those, right? And comfort exactly. So that all disappeared. That those were the shelves that were empty, right? Um, um, and then the stores are like, okay, we need more prego, and we need more space for the prego and the spaghetti. And oh, by the way, the distributors were getting all backed up, and so they just started pulling smaller brands off the shelves and the grab and go section. They'd like, in a lot of cases, they just literally got rid of the whole section in a store because nobody's going anywhere. They're not grabbing anything. Mm -hmm. So that has been super difficult for lots of brands. Um, And it's coming back, but it's not back to where it was before COVID. And now we have Delta and who knows, but so it's kind of a mixed bag. And those folks, if they, if they were kind of riding this whole thing, then they need even more working capital. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that's kind of the the brand story. Um, And at Tara's way, the working capital, well, you handled that with an SBA 7A, right? Yes, we did. And a lot of investor money. And the investor money. Combination of the two things. I mean, we we built a factory, right? So we use a lot of debt financing to buy equipment, that kind of stuff, the hard assets. Um, Yeah, so that's what happens with working capital, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then moving in, like, so what do um, capital requirements for farms, like, what does that look like? you know, farms that are are pivoting and selling direct to consumer, or they're going, they're taking a product into a grocery store. Um, they need the same kind of capital the brands do to do that because they're basically becoming brands, right? So they too, at that point, need all that working capital to support that. Um, they have a, they have a different challenge in that they're farms, right? And so. They, they also, farms typically need a lot, they have a lot of hard assets, right? Farmland in and of itself is expensive, tractors, equipment, bins, all kinds of stuff, (laughs) right? So there's just a lot of assets in farms and conventional farming has been suffering this year, could be the one year in seven that conventional ag actually makes money. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the ag lending community has gotten very, tight, right, with money, because conservative, because um, there's so much pressure on their loan portfolios. Um, so the result of that is that it's been really hard time for farms to access kind of any kind of capital, um, a lot of the value-added people that we work with. And then our value-added people show up weird to a lender, an mm-hmm. ag lender, Right. Like what? You need money to fund what? You know, like, the brand is kind of intangible and it's hard in that environment to yeah, show totally. the value there. Exactly. And and they're not used. It's not like a commercial bank that's used mm-hmm. to funding a food comp brand company. Right. Because they get it because they've been doing this. But the egg people. Um, don't deal with that. Um, so it looks really different. And a lot of ag lenders literally don't even work with the SBA. Like they don't mm-hmm. do seven A's, right? And so they don't they don't actually have experience with some of the, the financial tools that are out there to help de-risk those things for them. So it's it's a weird 
it's a weird, challenging environment, um, but for farms. But one thing that farms have that brands don't is value-added producer grants, which are they used to be. I used to get irritated with that grant because it would people would use it to buy tractors, you know, equipment. And I'm like, don't do that because you can get a loan from that from a bank. You you need to do all the stuff like packaging and labels and promotions and all that mm-hmm. stuff that they because that is so now the way that they that grant has evolved that that's the those are the allowable uses they don't let you buy equipment with it anymore and i actually think that's a really good evolution of that grant yeah Um, that's great it's encouraging you to leverage the collateral (laughs) yeah exactly like Mm -hmm. use the collateral to get a loan from a bank all this stuff that there is no collateral for that's what we're going to use the vapg for and Mm -hmm. um so we've seen you you know and that we've seen farms um, be it successfully get VAPGs and, and it is, it is really great to see how useful that is for them in terms of their capital. Um, and then I guess the last one is the food system thing. And, um, that would be like food hubs and public markets and, um, you know, maybe some kinds of, I'm going to call it community it owned or co- farmer cooperative processing stuff like that. What what is interesting to me about those situations right now it, on the money side is that um, I think com- there are communities around the country, cities around the country, that have identified a, having a vibrant local food industry as an economic development engine, right? So mm-hmm. they've said, okay, if we have this, people will want to live in our community. It'll create manufacturing businesses in our community. This would be a good thing. Um, so there's more public money and public, you know, opportunities to get public grants and other kinds of public funding for those enterprises, right? Um, Like a public market, for example. Um, I think there's also more recognition from foundations, like private foundations, that these things could be not just good for the local economy, but also good for the social outcomes that they are Mm -hmm. seeking. Um, So there's more, you know, you know, particularly in parts of the country that have a lot of philanthropic money, which is not Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) um, um, You see, I see projects like we see projects at FFI that, that have more um, diverse funding sources like that, which, which is really helpful. Cause if you think about a public market, no, kind of no matter what you do to that business model, it's not going to cash flow, right? Just on revenue, because mm-hmm. you can't charge enough to vendors to build a whole building, basically. Um, so, so it's going to need some ongoing subsidy. And the fact that there has been this um, innovation and public sector financing and, in, you know, that's grown out of the interest has been really helpful in, in parts of the country to see more of those enterprises move forward. So there's, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of, there's still so much opportunity to leverage these sources of funds to 
address growth and COVID and broad trends are allowing it to even open up more to incorporate some of those food access and community oriented lenses and even create hybrids across them all, which is a whole new layer of opportunity as well, um, mm-hmm. which really I feel like is what you were driving FFI towards probably in the start, whether you knew it or not. <laughs> yeah, no, that is, that is what I was doing, right? I was my, the premise of it was looking at looking at food in general, saying to about food hubs and food system things and farms, actually, you got to learn about CPG because that's what you're all becoming, right? Mm-hmm. And, and now COVID just accelerated that, right? So now that now that that has happened, um, I think more people kind of understand that, but it is a whole different skill set, right? And so, you know, if you, it, it took years for me to learn what I learned, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, right? So, so, um, I mean, it, it's such yeah. a, such a invaluable insight that you latch onto it of, you know, how do we help? Cause CPG brands or those consumer packaged good brands have so many resources at their disposal to develop these systems and best practices and marketing and to have that insight and that um, service oriented lens of, you know, how do we create curriculum? How do we really bring this to that farmer who has the 20 hats or that small food business entrepreneur and help them kind of access and tap into this knowledge to be successful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I think the other big innovation that, that I get to, I can, I can thank, um, I can thank Zach, who was my first employee at, at, um, at FFI for this. Um, um, he was the one who said, Hey, um, you know, this, so we digital, so we, the university, um, the university, uh, was has been incredibly supportive of what we were doing and provided after we got the LFPP grant and um, to, to try to really push developing a digital component to what we were doing. Like, you know, people in the old days, you know, I'm old enough that the way you <laughs> learn stuff is get a textbook, right, or something. And now people learn in so many different ways. So that the university said, okay, we'd love it if you would basically be a bit of a skunk works and try to figure out a way to really leverage digital modalities for getting content out. So that, that was what started edible alpha. And, um, so this podcast edible alpha, I can thank Zach for that because I am not a millennial. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I dye my hair, so I don't know how gray it is. (laughs) Um, I, yeah, which yeah, is getting more and more important, I suspect. (laughs) But I mean, after raising like five kids, three real ones and two business ones, right? Like it's impressive that it's still, you still got all your hair. I know. Right. Exactly. Well, there, yeah. Isn't that crazy? I actually, yeah, I'm blessed with a lot of hair. Anyway, (laughs) it gets curly though. I gotta say that's a problem. Anyway, Zach is, you know, millennial and he, and he said, you know, we should really do a podcast. I'm like, a pod what like I know. <laughs> and then I talked to my kids who are all millennials too and they're and turns out that all my kids listen to podcasts and they learn and they view it as a way to learn stuff right and so I'm like okay well what would happen if we started a podcast so that's what we did um 
And in the beginning, we were, we did it ourselves, right? We didn't use a studio <laughs> and, and, you know, people would call in and the audio quality be, would be awful or not equalized, right? <laughs> and stuff when it, it was, yeah, not the best. Um, and then we started, we learned really early on how important all that was because, because listeners don't want to be annoyed by the process. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so, so that's how we ended up um, getting hooked up with the studio that we work with. And, um, um, and what, what I've discovered about this that has been so cool is, um, is just how accessible a podcast is as a learning platform, right? That we can do content we do this, we do podcasts, right? And, and then we can leverage the content into curriculum that we develop. Um, we have people all over the country following the podcast now. I, I don't know. I, have you looked recently how many downloads were, we've hit? Uh, we've, we're over 46,000 across wow. 95 episodes with listeners in all 50 states and even some abroad. So I think wow. that's a real testament to, yeah, the value that these conversations have and the insights they provide. It is crazy. So I, I when I did Tara's Way, right, I would be flying around the country or doing something and um, and people, you know, what do you do? And I would tell people and, and in, as things progressed, right, I would get, oh, my God, I got to tell you the story about whatever it was with Tara's Way, because people knew the brand. Right. And and we were doing a product that is um, very powerful for health and wellness. So they would share their stories about their mother with breast cancer who lived on Tara's Way for three months and, you know, stuff like like that, that was so meaningful for me. Um, lately, I would say, and by lately, I mean, this is, this, maybe people were listening more podcasts during COVID. I don't know. <laughs> but now that we're coming out of COVID, I will go somewhere and, and I'll have people look at me and they get this weird look on their face. And maybe it's because I'm wearing a mask too, but they, this <laughs> weird look on their face. And they, they say, I know how I know you. I listen to your podcast, right? So they knew my voice. They recognized my voice, but they never met me, right? And that's that's like, holy crap, like that that's happening now. You know, in the world of educational podcasts, 46,000 is a lot of downloads, right? Yeah. It, yeah, it's a lot. And in, even in the world of a business doing a podcast, it's a lot. So we're we, it's been incredibly well received. I have people tell me all the time how much they've learned from it and how interesting it is, you know. And it, it's been it's been such a great journey to do this podcast. When you kind of hinted at how um, just the impact of the not only the podcast, but of, you know, the services of FFI and of the product and developing Tara's Way. And it's no small feat to have started two companies and kind of seen them evolve and grow to a point where you can kind of step away and know that they'll carry on. And I think that's sort of every entrepreneur's, you know, driving force or dream, right, is to be able to create something that that will last and carry on. And so, um, what have you found has allowed you to 
create that culture and create that um, ability for those companies to be able to grow in that way. So here's, this is what I tell people in boot camp, right? And, and I tell people in boot camps cause, cause I've been there, right? I, mm-hmm. I think, I think the, the first thing is doing something that's defensively unique. I talk about that all the time. And in, in fact, <laughs> I don't know if this is still true, but a, <laughs> I, a couple years ago, I did a Google search for the term defensively unique. And what came up was a sl- my own slide. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I'm going to do it right now while you talk. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, the reason I, I say yes. that, is that, yeah, see? That's what I got. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, so the reason that I say that is that um, if you do something that way, um, it means that, well, it's defensively unique and something that that people want, right? So you can have a unique thing that nobody wants and it doesn't go anywhere. But if you identify something that people actually, an unmet need, right? And then you and the and then you meet it. So it's a it's a you meet it with something that they they actually wanted to have but couldn't get right a solution to that problem. And then you do it in a so it's unique because they needed it. And nobody else is doing it. And then defensible means it's hard to copy, right? So it's something that other people, for whatever reason, are going to have a hard time doing you know, the, like looking at you and saying, okay, well, I'm just going to copy that. Right. Right. Um, in the case of Tara's way, that was true because, um, whey is 95% water. So you can't have a whey plant doing organic whey that's far away from organic cheese plants. And it turns out that we just here in Wisconsin, most of the organic cheese in the United States is made in this area. Right. So you really can't replicate that thing somewhere mm-hmm. else. Um, same thing was true for goat cheese and go away. So it was, it was a thing that if you could make it work would make it very d- difficult to copy. And it was solving a real problem. The same thing is true for, um, for the food finance Institute, because, um, the, the unmet need is this money thing and the, and the convergence of CPG with farming and food systems. And to really know how to approach that, you, you needed to have experience in all of those areas. And there aren't, there just aren't a lot of people. There'll be more coming now because this mm-hmm. is becoming more of a thing, but, but it, it, it's still hard. And then I, and specifically we do money and money my, you know, a lot of more, more people do marketing, right? They do other kinds of consulting, but the money is still such an obstacle and it is a, um, a knowledge set in and of itself that is, that, that, um, is must much, it's just much more unique, right? So I've always said that I did food finance Institute finance for a reason, right? It's about the money, um, and that makes it hard to copy too. That just the knowledge is hard to copy. So that that's the starting point, right? And then mm-hmm. beyond there, you have to like develop a thing around it, right? Which is the typical got to build a business model around it and got to figure out how to staff it and how to tell the story and market it and all those things, right? That are that you have to do um, to get anything to 
be something other than yes. an idea. And there's, yeah. There's a lot in there. <laughs> but yeah. uh, a core tenant in there is probably really this like organizational culture and team aspect, mm-hmm. right? You know, you mentioned, oh, what was it? 2016 is what, you know, six, seven years ago, it was just you and you brought one staff member on. And I imagine if if we were there, it would be a little different um, for you kind of stepping into this new role versus where we are today, where you now, we now have the Food Finance Institute with a staff of five plus, we have a 150 plus consultant network, um, kind of how, how did you find success in developing all of that and what tips would you have for somebody in really setting that up for success for the long-term sustainability of the business? Yeah. So I, um, I tell people when I was doing Tara's way, I was in a, uh, in a tech group called Tip tech. Now they're called Vistage, but, um, and one of the people in my group had, had taken over his family from his dad, an electrical contracting firm when it was like two trucks and and now it has it's a national electrical contractor with over a billion in annual sales, like mm-hmm. a, astonishing growth, right? And and one of the things that he was always telling us, comparative newbies in the group, was <laughs> um, that it, it's all about building the team, actually, right? And and figuring out that the exhausting part of it is not knowing knowing that you want to build a team to me, the exhausting part is, and this goes back to the money, right. Is having the money to hire the team. Right. So mm-hmm. I would have loved to have a t- the team the day I started FFI, but I had to figure out a way to raise the money to hire somebody. Right. And then mm-hmm. we've been serially doing that. And now, um, you know, we built we built a track record of of a success with with USDA grants and and partnering with the SBA and the SBDCs on some grant programs and and doing things with the universities. So we built up a track record of funding that has enabled us to build a team, right? For for me to build the team and. Um, and it is, it is interesting, right? Like entrepreneurial people like me are people who are build. We are creators and builders. Um, mm-hmm. We're just not good at status quo maintenance, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So when things get to the place where they're more, and I'm not saying that FFI is going to go into status quo maintenance. That's not really true, but it it, it is coming out of the, out of the phase now of complete ambiguity and having to experiment your way through a whole bunch of things and building the team and figuring out the business model and all those, like that's all done now. Right. Um, and um, most of my friends think I'm crazy for leaving. Actually, <laughs> They're like, what the hell's wrong with you? Um, but, but the, you know, my gift is to be able, is that I can do that, right? And they're and they're very, I don't know, the data on how many people are on actually entrepreneurs. Um, lots of people say they want to do it. It's only like five percent of the population that actually does it. It's really interesting if you look at data about entrepreneurship. 
I'm sure it's one of those things that it sounds so romantic, right? In theory, but then (laughs) when you actually realize what it means and that you have to, you know, as you have said many times, you have to personally guarantee, like, are you willing to put your house on the line and everything else you own, right? Often is like the case. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I, I had... You know, I was my joke when Tara's way was like, if this all falls apart, I'm living in a yurt in my boyfriend's <laughs> backyard because it was, yeah. Um, I mean, there's that there's that level of risk, but there's also like like not a lot of people deal well with the ambiguity of not having a business model, like having being in a place where you have to try a lot of different things to get into mm-hmm. a place that works, right? Or or be the person who's out there convincing people that, no, 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 the world really needs a food mm-hmm. finance institute. And people were looking at me like, what's a food finance institute? Like at that point, nobody even knew we needed one except somebody like me who had to raise all that money and did all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, we really need this money thing. Uh, so, yeah, there's just there's a lot, uh, a lot in there. Um it definitely takes a unique skill set of like extreme sales of intuition because mm-hmm. like you said, it's ambiguous and you don't have a data set to analyze to direct you on a path. You are identifying what you think will work based on intuition and proving the concept as you go to solidify that business model. And it's amazing because as you've mentioned, we now have this um, proof of concept of curriculum, things that work that we get to carry forward and and iterate on. Yeah, no. For the future. And yeah, no. And I, what I love about now, you know, the Edible Alpha, the learning platform now is that, and the, that compared co- with combined with this network of consultants around the country is that, is that it doesn't need one person anymore, right? It, it, it's grown way beyond me and one person, right? It's a, it's a very powerful network. And, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I keep, I keep telling everybody this, you know, the, the food, the food world is not that big, right? Especially the food <laughs> system world. And so, and, and the, and the sustain, sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture world. So I'm still going to be on the same merry-go-round. I'm on a different horse, but it, it's the same merry-go-round, right? And I, I imagine, um, I imagine, and practically speaking, we're still going to be working on grants together and things with FFI. So it, it's not like I'm riding off into the sunset <laughs> never to be seen again. <laughs> well, very true. It's sort of like you once you're in this space, you you choose it for a reason, right? There's a mission alignment. There's a passion here, right? Um, mm-hmm. And when you're the founder, you also don't just get to walk away. So there's various ways that you send this tend to stay connected. But um, yeah, why don't you share a little bit more, Tara, about where you're headed off to? Sure. So, um, oh God, when was it? Uh, 18 months ago or so. We, um, so, so we work with farms, right, as I said, and they tend to be high value added farms. And there were a number of them that we worked with over the years who were getting part of their financing or all of it from something called the Iroquois Valley Farmland REIT, which is a um, real estate investment trust that, um, that finances organic farmland. And, um, 
we started doing technical assistance because we were doing technical assistance to help people, these farmers raise money. Right. And, and then we created a pro we wrote a grant, created a program, wrote a grant to be doing more technical assistance and business coaching and training for uh, beginning farmers who are going into Iroquois portfolio or who are already in there. Um, because they're, you know, their farmers are experiencing the same challenges all farmers are right now. If you look out around us, right, it's, uh, this summer, right? I don't know. It could be a flood. It could be fire. It could be, uh, you know, it could be um, just drought. I mean, there's so many issues, right, for farmers. And they, and they needed, it was hard enough to make money doing this before, right? So, Looking into the future, I, I, you know, I'm kind of back asking myself again over the last year, what is it that I can do, given the skills, not unique set of knowledge, skills and abilities I have um, to make the biggest difference um, as the climate is changing, right? And my answer to that was working with um, farmers to help them become more regenerative, right? Building regenerative practices into farms. And there's a money component to that too, right? I tell people, it's just like, you know, everything else we do. I'm like, you know, farming, don't ask me how to do a cover crop rotation. I have no idea. But what I can tell you is the money, like I can help you figure out how much money you'll need to do it, how, where the sources are, all of that. So, um, so I'm going to, so I'm, you know, getting off the FFI horse and getting on the, the Iroquois Valley horse. So we can be, I, so I can be helping that lead that fund in the work um, of working with these farms and helping them get the capital they need um, to reposition themselves for success in this emerging kind of terrifying world we're all in. Well, and it's not, you know, many folks who are ready to take such a big step to this CEO position of a investment fund, right, at, at this stage in their career. And so, you know, forever the entrepreneur and forever making <laughs> making a difference within this system, right? It's just a, I love watching the journey, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. No, I mean, that is the part that people are like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and, and I, uh, you know, I think um, part of the the reason this is not a startup, right? They've been around for 14 years. It's anything mm -hmm. but a startup. Um, it, it's an interesting thing that for companies, though, you go through phases in a, even in a mature company when um, you need a lot of, you know, what kind of where the thing has been going for a while is working. It's core business, but it, but something has changed in the external environment that says, oh my God, we really have to kind of, um, we have to do new things, right? So it's mm -hmm. like pushing an exit, it push, the external environment can sometimes push a mature company to have to, to reinvent itself in a way or reinvent part of itself. And that's an entrepreneur's journey, right? We're back mm -hmm. in the ambiguity and we're back in the experimentation and being able to live in that space. Um, so that that's that's why it kind of makes sense for somebody somebody like me to to be working with somebody like Iroquois at this point. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what an opportunity to to continue to make an impact um, and highlight some of those opportunities, right, for funding in, in that sector. And mm-hmm. I'm sure we will have, as you've hinted at, many more opportunities to dig in with you um, along the way on that part of your journey. Yeah. But I'm realizing, oh, go ahead. I, oh, I was just going to say that I, I think um, because, as I mentioned, there's overlap between the farms that FFI works with and the farms that, in fact, you know, we were written in grants for FFI to do technical assistance with our, with your Koi portfolio farm. So there's going to be a chance to, to, um, to come back on the podcast probably. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I agree. And I think as we dig into those farms and, and how they're working and working with Iroquois and financing, that's going to be something of, of interest for a lot of our listeners too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I want to, I want to come back to uh, just something I, one of my, I love when folks provide feedback on working with you, Tara, that they, they will often mention that you like crush dreams in a good way, <laughs> and that you are just really good at bringing that, you know, like reality and making people uncomfortable, but it's because of that, that they find a better path and the right path for them. And so I think that is a really important piece of looking at that business model and finding financing. And so um, I would just love to hear how you have found the best way to actualize that in the day-to-day and what advice you would kind of leave entrepreneurs with. Yeah. Well, so a couple of ways to think about that. I, I, um, um, I had a conversation with a long-term client today about, you know, leaving, leaving to change my role. And so I'm going to have to not be coaching quite as, you know, closely with them. And, and they, they said something similar to what you're saying, but they also said that, that one of the things that was so helpful is that you didn't like just dump this whole huge list of things that we had to do and just let like send us off and say, you know, chomp through this list um, that you've been, you know, you were so helpful in, in kind of helping them diagnose the thing right in front of them to work on, right? Like in pe- take the whole big challenge of doing this and chop it up into pieces and say, look, this is the high priority right now. Um, and then they too said something about, uh, about the, you know, I don't think they use the word dream crush. I mean, <laughs> ironically, the, the dream crusher is actually, it's almost like the Phoenix out of the ashes sort of thing. I'm really more the, about the Phoenix than the crushing. Like, <laughs> I think that I, is an important distinction. In it is, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's like. I work really hard because there are lots of people who come to us and they are, they are passionate and they really want to make a difference in the world. And they have the germ of something that could be a really great business and there are problems with it. Right. And, and sometimes it can be serious problems and this happens probably even more in food system areas than anything. So, so my, my motivation for saying, yeah, that'll never work is not to just like send somebody away. It is to say, okay, that won't work based on all my experience. That's not going to work that way, the way you think about it, but let's think about ways that might make it work. Like how can we, 
And it's not personal. It's the business model. That's what Mm -hmm. I, that's, it's really about the business model. When you have business model problems, um, no matter how hard you work, you're going to go backwards, right? You, You just have to fix the business model. So that, that, that's always, that's always my motivation is to actually empower people, not crush them. Um, but I, I'm really passionate about the idea that we do nobody a favor when we cheerlead them into things that aren't going to work just because we're afraid to say no, you know, say, give people feedback that that's not a good idea. I think I mean, it's, other people can be, mo- your mother will be your cheerleader. I'm not, you know what I mean? I, people come to a consultant because they can help them understand what's going to work. I think it's such a, it's great how it's become such a core component in, in bootcamp and in consultant training, um, kind of coming full circle to what you said before when I asked about money and you're like, it follows the business model. And this is why it's so important that we spend so much time on it. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, if you have a business model that is really that is hangs together well, and you do all the things you need to do to get it documented, right? And by documented, I mean a financially documented, so a performa um, forecast, and you get all your numbers together, and you get a good pitch deck together, and a cogent narrative around it, like like. We see people raise money all the time. And these are people who, you know, people think it's really hard to raise money. It is hard, but not if you have your act together, right? And that, that was, that's such a powerful thing about what FFI does. Do you have like a proudest moment when you think back on the years or a really um, like empowering success story that sits in your mind that you really highlights the time at FFI and the work you've put into it? Yeah, that's a great, I, you know, I have, I actually have a lot of those. I, I'm I, sure I, it um, might be hard to pick. It's like, it, what's is, your... hard, it is hard to pick. <laughs> I, I have one that I want to, I can highlight just because it, it stretches kind of the whole arc of things. So um, it was probably right around 2014 that I started it was in 2014. I started working with something here called Lonesome Stone Milling, mm-hmm. which was um, a local um, local grain mill that was doing organic milling. It was um, a stone ground flour mill in an ancient facility, right? Like they had a seed cleaning portion of it and the, the equipment was like literally wood and the size of a barn. Like we're talking really, really with all these, <laughs> with the <a> diesel <laughs> generator and all these, like it was really old, right? Oh man. It yeah. was amazing. But anyway, we but, but organic, like farmers are going to start putting organic grains for edible organic grains in their rotations. There was no place to clean it. There was no place oh. to, to, to mill it into flour. There was literally no market and no processing. So Lonesome Stone was started to fill that gap. Um, and they first, they, they, we helped them work on building a warehouse, uh, a storage warehouse, you know, so they, it was a place to, um, to store grain after they milled it or st- store grain that came in. Um, 
And it was in this little town called Lone Rock, which literally was this mill and a tavern. <laughs> that was it. And, and, and there were other commercial buildings, but it was all closed. Like, you know, the sad decline of rural America, right? Mm-hmm. There's um, very little there anymore. Um, so it was, it was really great to work with Gilbert and, um, we worked with farm credit who was helping them with, with working capital. If you think about the milling business, everything you harvest in the fall, everything you, all your inputs, you have to buy in the fall <laughs> and you sell Ooh, yeah, it cash for the flow rest is gonna, of the year. Cash flow is horrible gonna, in a business mm-hmm. like that. So, <laughs> so the ag lenders know how to handle that. So, yep. So they were working with them. And then, you know, fast forward now um, to 20, really, actually it was during COVID, so 2020, um, um, Lo, uh, Gilbert and Lonesome Stone has been at this for a while, and he he wants to retire. And there's a young farm couple who has been, who we, who we were all, I was also working with, who, um, who is um, buying a 600-acre organic farm from somebody who they are not related to. And that's the kind of project that people say could never get financing. Um, and um, and it did, and they and they were selling selling they had a VAPG to sell their grain to Lonesome Stone, Lonesome Stone would mill it, and then they launched a brand, right? With out of that VAPG. And then Fast forward, they, they're buying this farm. They wanted to move Lonesome Stone. They wanted to buy Lonesome Stone, move it onto their farm, um, get financing to build a mill. Um, and, um, and we had that, that happened. And part of the a key to getting the young couple started down the road of building enough net worth to be able to do to buy this farm was a mortgage that was written by Iroquois Valley right so Uh, very uh early on Iroquois was involved in helping them um and that was like a carve out of a little of of a place where there were um there was a house and some um, shelter for some cattle because they the the couple who was doing this um, then got FSA money to help them start buying a um, a herd of breeding livestock. So breeding livestock are assets, right? That that are long lived assets, and they keep having babies. It's a thing <laughs> yes. about breeding yep. livestock. <laughs> So it actually is a way to grow your net worth, right? Is, is having breeding livestock. So, um, so they did that early on. So they were on this path of, you know, ownership and Lonesome Stone was growing its business. And then during COVID they came together. Um, so, so that's, and now there's this, you know, Metal Arc Organics, um, brand of, of um, flour that is all in around the upper Midwest. Um, they pivoted and did a great um, uh, uh, flat. I think, it, I don't know if they called it flour CSA or whatever, but oh, they sure. did a, during COVID, right. When people uh-huh. were, were doing a lot of baking bread at home and stuff. Um, so they, they created something and did a great job of sort of 
you know, they were kind of early on selling online. So it was a bit of a scramble, but they got all that going. So yeah. And, and it's incredible now to, to interview them, which I did recently, we did a podcast with them. I don't know, not that long ago, because, you know, compared to when I first met John and Haley and we're talking to them, they were very, you know, kind of dreamy about what they wanted <laughs> to do. And now the, it, they're still incredibly visionary and mission aligned, but they are now seasoned business people and you can tell in the interview. So that, I mean, to me that, that it doesn't get any better than that. Like what oh, wow. a difference. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's such a great example of the, how you said, you know, you don't want to, you're not, you're finding ways to empower and make a situation work. And folks are saying you can't make land transfer work if it's not a family. And here you mm-hmm. found a way to, or helped them find a way to finance and a young couple take ownership of not only the 600 acre farm, but of a mill. And it's that great bridge of how the farm food system and value added farm and brand all come together. Yeah, no, it's a great example of all of that. And, um, and brings and in Iroquois, whole, which yeah. leads us to this like perfect, um, I guess, full circle of the journey and how it all kind of comes together to grow the, the ecosystem as a whole. Mm-hmm. And it's a great indicator of why I say I'm still on the same merry-go-round, yes. but on a different <laughs> horse because... <laughs> Because these projects are going to come up and they're going to need technical assistance um, that, I mean, technical assistance is core to getting things to work. I am absolutely convinced about that. The money is one thing and the sources of money are another thing, but it's the combination of the money plus the technical assistance to help people understand how to best deploy it, that that's where the magic happens, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, it shows too with not only the success there, but you know, 2014 to 2020, you highlighted there. So that was six years of knowing you had this re- that this resource and this technical assistance and this um, support was in your corner to help, or to, in your corner being that the farms or the businesses to help them grow and see this level of success. Mm-hmm. We hear that over and over again um, about how. Um, just having somebody to run stuff by who, who is experienced in business and knows what they're doing is so helpful because you're kind of in the weeds otherwise, right? And you, t- you can talk to your friends about it, but they don't really know what the hell you're talking about, right? <laughs> so, or they get sick of you talking yeah, about it every day right? and you're oh, like, God, but this is geez. exciting. <laughs> talking about this again, right? Like, oh, no. Um <laughs> Yeah. So it's a lonely business. It's lonely at the top. It's a lonely business to be an entrepreneur, actually. I don't, I don't think people realize that as, uh, you know, we romanticize entrepreneurship so much in our country that I don't think we quite realize how lonely it is. Well, you have certainly done your part to help it be less lonely by creating this network and this kind of legacy within the Food Finance Institute. And um, is there anything more that we haven't touched on or that you would like to kind of add about the journey or about the work or about where you're going? You know, I think, I think we're good for now. 
I, I think we'll leave it here because I do believe that there will be moments in the future when I will come back because there's going to be projects that are interesting or something that has come up. So um, I think we'll leave it there. I always like to come back to punctuation. It's like we're not ending this with a period. It's an ellipses because the go. story is continuing. Like you said, you will be back and we will have many more. We'll have other conversations um, about the great work to grow the food farm and food system sector. So I've enjoyed the opportunity to interview Tara and we look forward to seeing all that you do at Iroquois and to continuing to share our dual successes and individual successes as we move forward. That's awesome. It's been, it's been really fun to have the tables turned. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.